take our Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we will read the first four verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. When I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. There is a phrase that we use. It's the title of the sermon. It's, I think, an apt title of chapter 16. It is a phrase that, from what I understand, comes from the nautical world. It was an order that was given right before they were to set sail. It is the last and final order, apparently, that was given. Think, in particular, the time frame when when ships were powered by only the wind that God had given them. And so of all the preparations that had to be done, of all of the expectations that had to be met in order to get underway, right as they were done with all the big tasks, all the big work, all the hard stuff from loading the boat to prepping the boat to getting the sails ready, whatever the case may be, when they had everything done and they only had one final order, the order would come out, tie up the loose ends. The the idea being, especially in a vessel that would have had all kinds of rope, that it's not good to have those dangling or loose. And in particular, if that rope is essential for maintaining the integrity of it, you didn't want loose ends. So the phrase was, was then coined at that time, tie up those loose ends, go in there and make sure everything is tidy, everything is secure, make sure there isn't any last bit of work that needs to be accomplished before we get the voyage underway. Now, this phrase then we use in context today. If, if, I, if I tell you, well, I've almost got the project finished, I just need to tie up some loose ends. It's an idiom we're familiar with, right? That, that means I'm almost done. It means I got the heavy work done, I've got the planning done, I've put it together, I've got all the materials, whatever the, the, the work may be to say, I just have some loose ends to tie up, that means I've got a little bit here and a little bit there, there are some final parts pieces that have to be put together, maybe a task here and there, maybe some cleaning up that has to be done, and then the project will be complete. I I think this is an apt title for 1 Corinthians 16, because I think that's exactly what Paul is doing. Now as we get to the final chapter of the book, hard to believe, right? Final chapter, we Believe it or not, some of you are wondering, because some of you have been here for a certain amount of time where I've yet to finish a sermon series, all right? In other words, you came, I was in 1 Corinthians, I was in Romans, and you're wondering, does he ever finish these things? Yes, all right? They do get done, and 1 Corinthians, oh, we are close. Paul just has some loose ends to tie up. And it it is just that. There there are a variety of issues that he's got to come back to and he's got to finish up. Keep in mind a bit of context about this letter. Some of you may remember this, some of you may have known this, or, or maybe not. 
But the reason Paul writes 1 Corinthians is because he's gotten a letter in the first place. A letter from the church was given to him, and in that letter clearly was a list describing the most dysfunctional church on the planet. I don't know any other way to put it. In fact, it's so dysfunctional, Paul writes 16 chapters. Here's a little test, by the way. You th- I don't know how long your letters are when you write them, but go home and copy by hand the book of 1 Corinthians and see how many pages you end up with, all right? So this is a long letter. There's a lot here. Paul clearly had a bunch of issues that had been brought before him by these folks in Corinth. And so 1 Corinthians then is, is the answer. You can tell the, when you read it. Paul goes from topic to topic. He talks about marriage. He talks about remarriage. He talks about divorce. Uh, he talks about sexual ethics. He talks about leadership issues. He talks about unity in the church. He talks about what to do if somebody's offered meat to idols. Uh, he talks about how you do the Lord's Supper. What do we do with spiritual gifts? Uh, the, these are the topics that come up. And then we just spent several weeks in the last chapter, and that is making sure everybody understands the doctrine of the resurrection. And when you read through this letter, Paul, I mean, Paul's dealing with some heavy stuff. Heavy doctrine, some heavy disciplinary issues that have to take place. Quite frankly, some of the stuff in 1 Corinthians is a bit uncomfortable <laughs> in the directness with which Paul talks about issues that this church is dealing with. But all that's done. There's no, there's no more really deep theological issues to be addressed. There's, there's no more nuanced argumentation that Paul has to do. There's, there's not going to be any more references to the Old Testament or, or, or making sure that people understand some you know, weird uh, heretical idea that's inserted because of Greek philosophy. N- none of that in this last chapter. This, this literally is loose ends. Paul has a letter in front of him that's dealing with all kinds of issues and I, I, don't want, I wonder if Paul hasn't gotten to the end of chapter 15, though he didn't actually write the chapters, but he gets done with this whole thing on the doctrine of the resurrection and looks back over the pages, right? He says, how do you send a 30-page letter to somebody? But yet, he still has these other issues that have to be addressed. So, chapter 16, it is a rapid-fire list of final things. Here are the last few things that we're going to clean up Several issues that were brought to him, issues about money. Uh, Paul gives, gives out his travel itinerary. <laughs> Paul is going to tell them what to do with leadership, especially when they have issues with some of those leaders. He's going to talk to them about fellowship. He's going to greet, uh, he's going to send greetings on behalf of other people. This chapter ends, by the way, in a really odd way. Like the, the third to last verse is a curse. Where Paul says, if you, if you don't believe this, then you are condemned to hell. Anathema is the term that, is, that would be used in the original language. So it's, a, it's an odd kind of chapter, and one that's not, well, it's just not as dramatic and sizzling as the other chapters. I, I don't know how, how you feel a, cha- you know, a, a letter should end. I don't know, 1 Corinthians 15? That's profound, right? 
Verses 50 through 58, it's talking about the second coming. It's talking about the resurrection from the dead. It has this great ending where he quotes the Old Testament. Oh, oh death, where is your sting? Oh, oh Hades, where is your power? And the, the sting of death is, is, is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us our victory in Christ Jesus. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Right? That's a great spot to finish. But then he goes on to chapter 16. Now concerning the offering. Right? I mean, it's a little anticlimactic, isn't it? Almost, I mean, I'm not going to tell you the Bible is a letdown, but it's a bit, it's, you know, it's like, oh, Oh, maybe we could just stop at chapter 15 and we go on to something else. But we'll find this is a significant chapter. Why is it significant? Because God wrote it. A bottom line, right? So it doesn't matter what we think of the exciting content of it. It is what God has inspired. And in fact, I, I find in this some very helpful instruction, because what Paul does for us in the tying up of loose ends, and I tried everything I could to find one key theme through the chapter. There isn't one. There, there isn't one. There isn't one that ties all these things together other than the rather ambiguous statement that Paul is going to lay out some final instructions for doing church right. He's, he's, he's continuing to put things in order for the church in Corinth. Clearly, these issues are not as pressing or dramatic as some of the other problems they were dealing with, but they're important nonetheless. And so, as we take a look at Paul's final instructions here, as he gives these, this final little bit, tying up the loose ends for this letter to the church in Corinth, his first letter to the church in Corinth, I think we do have some important truths we can glean from it. Some important insight into what Christian living looks like, Important insight into what a healthy church looks like. And so, that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks as we finish up this chapter, looking at what are six categories. Six categories where Paul's instruction here to the church in Corinth, I think, really gives us insight into what that looks like for Christian living. So, number one, <clears throat> based on that very first sentence, you can tell why this is the The first category that Paul addresses, now concerning the collection for the saints. So Paul's first loose end to tie up deals with the issue of giving. And again, just to to show, you know, this is exactly what Paul does in this letter, that phrase, now concerning, you could go back and read the letter. And if you read the letter looking for that kind of phrase, you will see Paul using the words now concerning or now concerning, I don't know, 20 times. For sure, now concerning, it shows up clearly as Paul transitions. It's just a transition statement. There's no connection between this text and the previous one. Paul is jumping topics. So, he did this earlier. He was talking about marriage at one point. Marriage and remarriage and divorce and and singleness. That was all in chapter 7. And then chapter 8 begins, now concerning meat offered to idols. Not something you and I naturally think we're going to deal with in our day-to-day lives, but for the folks in Corinth, it was. And so, that was an issue he addressed. So, Paul has been asked this question by the folks in Corinth. It's part of the letter he has received. It's asking about what he describes here in verse 1 concerning the collection for the saints. 
You may say, okay, what's, what's he talking about concerning the collection for the saints? Well, let me, let me first identify the word saint. For those who grew up or at some point have been influenced by Catholic theology, forget almost everything you've been taught about the word saint. Just, just let that go out. There, there's, no, there's no biblical grounding uh, for what is the, the, the Catholic veneration of specific people in her history, right? To, to label certain saints, and they've, I guess they've got a, a patron saint of just about every kind of thing out there, right? Patron saint for any kind of, of issue. Uh, there's going to be a saint celebrated this month, right? Valentine, all right. What about next month? Okay, all right, yeah. So, I mean, these, so this is a part of kind of the, the Catholic way of viewing things. These folks are venerated. Uh, sometimes there are prayers associated with them. Now, the reason why I bring this up again is just to make sure we understand the biblical use of the term. Paul, I get this, never, there's never one instance in the New Testament where saint is used to identify a subset of the Christian world of really super-duper spiritual people that have at least one miracle confirmed, all right? That's never in there. That's never a thing. No one is ever identified. You know who Paul calls saints? Every single believer. All of them. That's right. I know. You're looking at your neighbor and thinking, are you sure? Right? I know. I can tell. I can see in your eyes. I know you people. It's been 10 years. I know you guys. Yeah. In fact, you're, yeah, you're wondering, really? Saint? All of the saints? Okay. Yes. Yes. Because the word saint means one who is set apart. One who has been made holy. So you read the letters and Paul will identify, say, the church at Ephesus. He'll write to them saying, to the saints at Ephesus. So understand, when Paul is referring to saints here, he's not saying, well, there is a group of super-duper spiritual people, and I want you to collect money for them. That sounds like modern evangelicalism, doesn't it, right? No, he's talking about believers. Believers just like you and me, regular believers. If they are identifying as, you know, saved by Christ, Christ crucified, resurrected, if they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's identifying them as saints. Now, he doesn't go on to identify the specific group, but we know from history and even from the other parts of the New Testament, he's talking about the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the greater Judea area. There are two issues going on with those folks, and they had been for years. That was like the epicenter of persecution, I mean, right there in Jerusalem, that was, the, that, was, that was the heart of persecution. Also, they were enduring a famine. So it was already hard enough if you were a Christian, because if you were a Christian, you very well could have lost family, you could have lost friends, you could have lost your job, you could have lost whatever means of support that you had before. So it was already a big deal that you became a Christian. Many of them, also the earliest converts, were poor. And then add on top of that a famine that had been plaguing the land 
for some time. And it appears that from very early on, the disciples organized this. You can read about it in Acts chapter 11. They decided to take up an offering, to take up a collection for those in the Jerusalem-Judea area who were suffering uniquely under this kind of persecution. And it's not a surprise that Paul would make an appeal to the folks in Corinth because they were really well off. I mean, we have every evidence to believe. You can read 2 Corinthians as well. There seems to be some indication that as far as churches go, these guys were doing all right. I mean, they, they weren't, they, they, there, there certainly would have been poor among them. But you can even tell from this letter. The letter identifies there are even rich and poor in the church, right? Because the rich are bringing their own food to the special fellowship meals, right? The potluck, their pots are staying at their own table. I mean, that's what they're doing. And the poor then aren't getting anything to eat. So there are wealthy people in this church. And so Paul uh, is appealing to them to be a part of this collection. In fact, he goes on then to say, Now concerning the collection for the saints, notice this phrase, As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia. So the church written, the, the letter written to the church in Galatia, the book of Galatians, it's probably not just one church. That was probably a family of churches in that region. So that's what he's talking about here. I've already given this order to the churches in Galatia. We also know Macedonia. Uh, think Philippi and Thessalonians, um, uh, uh, Thessalonica. These are locations that are also a part of this. I just want to point out that phrase, I have given orders. Just, just as Paul had, Paul had no doubt about who he was and what he could do. So Paul was an apostle. So when he says, I gave orders, you know what this means? They have to do this. They have to do this. Now, this was a unique setup in the early church. No matter what you may hear in the world today, there aren't any apostles anymore. God fulfilled his quota. In the first century. Done, all right? That was it. That was all the apostles. And because of the nature of the first century church and the way the first century church was formed and grew before the time of the, the full revelation of Scripture, uh, they had authority in the churches. They could tell other churches what to do. But we don't have those folks anymore, and so each church then now is autonomous. But he's given orders, and then he tells them, so you must do also. Again, he's not saying, you know, if you guys get around to it, <laughs> If you get an opportunity to be a part of this thing, that'd be great. No, I, this, is, this is what I expect you to do. So then he gives some instruction on it. Verse 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So, first day of the week. What day is that? Sunday. By the way, have you noticed the disturbing trend if you buy calendars these days? They don't start on Sundays anymore. They start on Monday. I'm looking for a nefarious kind of conspiracy there. I'm sure there is one, right? I mean, traditionally, the calendar being Sunday, that's, that's, very, that's a very Judeo-Christian, in particular, New Testament, right? In particular, I would also, well, not just Protestant, but uh, for sure in the United States, ha- having this understanding that the week begins with a Sunday, Not only because that's the day that Christ rose from the dead, and traditionally that's how the calendar was understood. This was the first day of the week. First day of the week being Sunday. But recognizing that your week begins among God's people, in worship with God's people, celebrating, worshiping, 
the resurrected Christ and then you work out of that week, then the rest of the week is spent working. Uh, it's, it's a significant, I think, theological, philosophical image, but, uh, but I have noticed uh, a lot of calendars these days don't do that anymore. They, they begin on Monday, and so then Saturday and Sunday are considered the, the weekends. And uh, again, I, I could probably do a whole rant on that, on that uh, but I, I find that a really troubling kind of further evidence of an ongoing uh, secularization of the culture. All right, so first day of the week, by the way, note that reference, Paul doesn't give any explanation to it. You know what I take away from that? It was very clear that the early church was meeting on Sundays. That's, that's further evidence. They were, they were meeting on Sundays. Paul's saying the first day of the week, this is what I want you to do this, assuming this is something they're already doing. I think Paul is implying they're already doing this. They're already meeting on the first day of the week. And he tells them to set, set something aside. Do this every week. First day of the week, set something aside. Take up this collection, storing it up as you may prosper. Then that last phrase, that there be no collections when I come. I, I don't think that's Paul's way of saying, I don't want to have to fiddle with it when I get there. Like, I don't, think, I don't think he's saying, I, I don't want to see any money exchange hands. When he says, so there's no collection when I get there, I think he's saying, plan for this, prepare for this, take this up every week so that we're not just starting this project when I show up. Get this thing going. Don't wait for me to get there to start it. I think that's what he means by this. So, so go ahead and start setting some aside bit by bit. Then verse 3. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So, it, pick somebody. Notice the phrase, by the way, uh, whomever you approve. The word approve meaning the one who is designated as, as trustworthy, as dependable, as faithful. It is language used to describe a person who is appropriate for leadership. Uh, in the church. It is language that would describe elders, describe deacons. So, when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, uh, I will send to bear your gift then on to Jerusalem. Then verse 4, he adds this little bit, but if it is fitting that I go also, then they will go with me. So, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to tell, by the way, from the next text, beginning in verse 5, uh, Paul is making plans to go to Corinth. And so what he's saying is, when I get there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to Corinth, and then I'm going to be heading on to Jerusalem. So when I get there, either, either you go ahead and designate the, the people who are going to carry this money to Jerusalem, or we could all go. So Paul's first, the first little bit of loose ends that he's tying up here, it's pretty simple, straightforward instruction on the collection of this special offering. This, by the way, was not unusual for the church. The church regularly engaged in giving for its own. If you were to go back to the beginning of the early church, you may recall this. Not only do we find them gathering to learn the apostles' doctrine, they take the Lord's Supper together, they fellowship together. It also says they pooled their resources. In fact, you may remember one unfortunate couple, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Remember these folks? Who said, yeah, we're going to sell our land, we're going to give all that to the collection, to this special collection. And they didn't give all of it, right? And so the Holy Spirit killed them both. Killed them. Killed them both. It's just a fascinating story, given it's in the New Testament, right? And, and so this, this was a regular thing, that they would take up this collection. Even, even Acts chapter 6, 
and the whole discussion about the first deacons, it is done in the context of this distribution of food to the widows. Where do you think they got the food to distribute to the widows? They didn't have a food bank back then, right? So they're collecting it themselves. They're paying for it themselves. And then they're they're pooling their resources, and they are providing then for the needs of the church. By the way, do you see that kind of thing happen today? Can anybody think of a recent situation where maybe churches from around helped other churches that were in need? Does that kind of thing ever happen? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it does, right? In fact, what would any of these areas be like when there's some natural disaster if there's not the church? Right? I mean, this this place would be uninhabitable. I mean, this place, I mean, vast swaths of the United States would still be uninhabitable if it weren't for God's people coming, and not just to help other church people, but to help communities, right? In fact, just this week, uh, we got another check from a church in Birmingham, Alabama. A church sent us, sent our church, $5,000. It's my brother's church that he goes to in Birmingham, Alabama, and they sent us $5,000 for hurricane relief. I mean, they don't know. I mean, my brother knows me, but they don't know us. They don't know you, Right? But they feel this burden. I understand they've sent money to a lot of churches and then churches in Florida as well. So this is just something the church has been doing, the spirit of, of giving. Now, I, I want to conclude this by just laying out just a few points. I know you look at your outline and you think, wow, there's a lot of blanks left, and, and I see what time it is. He's not going to get through this. But it's, it's really just simple bits of instruction. I find it instructive what Paul says about the collection and, and I just want to describe it for you because I think it gives us insight into what giving should look like for believers, what giving should look like in the church. So, important imperatives for giving. Number one, giving is normal. It's normal. It's expected. It's something that they did. So, so Paul doesn't give us a whole lot of detail here other than to say there's a collection going on. He doesn't even describe it. So, what does that mean? The folks in Corinth already know about it. And then he says, and, and I expect you to do it, I expect them to do it, the folks in Galatia, I expect you all to do it. And then I would even suggest when it says on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, I think that, and then based on other information we have, I think they were regularly doing this kind of thing, whether for this specific collection or not. I think giving was a normal part of the church life. It's just, it's normal, it's to be expected. Number two, I would say giving is worshipful. What I mean by that is giving is an act of worship. I think, again, I think it's instructive. It says they're doing this on the first day of the week. What are they gathering to do on the first day of the week? They are gathering to worship. What is happening in the midst of worship? Taking up offerings. I know, I know we may assume that the reason we pass offering plates... <laughs> On a Sunday morning, you know, the, the more pragmatic among us may say, well, of course we're going to do that on Sunday morning. That's when the most people are here, right? Yes. In fact, let's do it twice on Sunday mornings, right? Beginning and end, I don't know. Lock the doors till we get what we want, whatever the case may be. But you may think, well, this is really practical. we got as many people here as we're going to have any given week on a Sunday morning, so let's take up an offering. So, granted, yes, it's a great time to do it. But have you ever wondered why we do it in the middle of the service? There are actually some churches that don't do it that way anymore. Some churches have relegated it to the very end of a service. 
for pragmatic reasons, for programming kinds of reasons. I, however, this is going to shock you, I'm a bit old-fashioned, okay, about these things. I know, whoa, what, really? Yeah, I like it right where where it is. I'm going to be the guy who's going to yell at kids, get off my lawn, all right? That's going to be me. I mean, it already is. I've done it a couple of times. So, that is me. I like it right where it is. I like the offering right where it is because I think giving is an act of worship. I think it's a way of saying a number of things. As I put money in that plate, now listen, don't get, if, if, you, if you give it in Sunday school, if you mail it, all right, I'm not telling you that you've got to then bring it on Sunday morning, though I do like the imagery of it, okay? So don't hear me chastising you if you do it a different way. If you, if you do automatic bank draft, God bless you, all right? That just whenever that comes out, you should worship right then in that moment because we do, all right? But so I'm not saying that you should just, you, you have to do it, but to have it there on Sunday morning, it's a way of saying, God, all of my money belongs to you. I'm just giving back to you what you've given to me. So that's an important moment. I would also suggest when you put something in the plate on a Sunday morning, you are saying something to the people around you. I don't know if they pick up on it or not. But it is a way of showing brotherly kindness and love, in essence. It is a way of demonstrating Christ-likeness. It is a way of demonstrating commitment to His church when you give. So giving, I think, is normal. I think giving should be worshipful. Number three, giving should also be intentional. Intentional. He tells them, lay something aside each week. And by intentional, I mean it's a planned event. Dare I use a word some of you love? The money people, meaning those of you who like numbers and spreadsheets, those of you that don't, don't love this word, it's the word budget, right? So when I say intentional, I mean planning, something that's budgeted. Sitting down and saying, yes, this is, this is what I'm going to give. I'm going to give this Every week, I'm planning for this, Ra- rather than, you know, the one who may would just show up at a service and maybe out of a little bit of guilt because other people are throwing in a few bucks and the person may throw in, a, you know, a few bucks. This kind of afterthought of giving, I would suggest it is to be intentional. Now, there could very well be times where you have a spontaneous moment where you decide to give million dollars, all right? That very well could happen to someone here. I'm prophesying very soon, all right? So, I don't know if that's you, but I, I sense it in the room. Um, there could be spontaneous times of giving, but I do think it should be intentional. All right, number four, I think giving is also to be proportional. It is to be proportional. Notice that next phrase, laying aside something, storing up as he may prosper. Kind of an odd way to say it, but it means giving in proportion to what you have been given. In other words, he's not saying everybody needs to contribute a thousand dollars. All right, he's not laying out an amount here. That this this is this is a way of saying give what you are able. That's giving in accordance with what you have been given. So it should be proportional, and then finally, it should be ethical ethical. By this I mean it should be handled 
well. I think it's interesting that Paul not only tells them when to take the offering, how to take the offering, to what degree they should give to the offering, but then also the how they should handle it when it's done. Find people who are approved that you can give this money to. And if necessary, I will accompany them. But make sure that the money is handled in a way that is fitting, that is appropriate. Now, we're not going to turn there, but I would encourage you at some point, maybe in this week, to read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. These two chapters, it is the most complete set of teaching on giving in the New Testament. Both chapters are devoted to it. What's interesting is in the midst of it, in chapter 9, you can tell Paul, one of Paul's purposes in writing 2 Corinthians is to give them another nudge. So here in this chapter, here in, in 16, he says, so you all be a part of this collection. You can tell when you read 2 Corinthians, they wanted to be a part of it. They were all on board. Even his time in Corinth, they were in board, on board to be a part of this thing. By the time you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he's telling them, by the way, you all made a commitment. You need to keep it. The implication being, Paul had yet to see money transacted. There seems to be some evidence, and there could be about a year's time between this letter and 2 Corinthians. So it seems like whatever has gone on, they didn't quite get the information the first time. And so he comes back then in chapters 8 and 9 of the next letter uh, to encourage them to give faithfully. So this is Paul's first loose end that he ties up. Next week he's going to tie up another loose end. Uh, interestingly enough, though, it's going to be his travel itinerary. Exciting, right? Paul's travel plans. Doesn't that sound... Who'd ra- who'd, who wants to talk about the resurrection and the second coming? Let's talk about Paul's travel plans. That sounds enlightening and uh, scintillating for sure. But it is interesting because I think Paul gives us a great perspective on what it looks like to plan and yet trust God's sovereignty. We make our plans, but the course of life belongs to the Lord. What does it look like? What do these two things look like lived out? Paul is going to give us a great example of that. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for gathering us tonight. Thank you for time in your word, time together in prayer. Lord, what a blessing it is to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for each and every one of them who has come out tonight, who's given of their time uh, to be involved uh, in this moment of fellowship. I pray your blessings uh, on them and to them and for them. Lord, I pray that as we leave from this place, we do so in faith and in trust. God, give us wisdom as we seek to live holy lives in what is often a very unholy culture. Lord, may our our lives be an expression of the life-changing power of the gospel, and may that message be on our lips. Use us as you see fit and all for your glory, and then gather your people back together again that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.